morning. My name is Blythe and I'm grateful to be with you all in this way today, even if it's not our first choice of how to gather together as a community. Today we continue in Eastertide, in the time after Easter where the earliest followers of Jesus began to slowly grasp the significance of the resurrection for their world and for their lives. I love how Nelson described this season in the church calendar last week, saying that in Eastertide, we are all risen to new life. We all become a new people together. And this morning, as we read about Christ's encounter with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we read about two people coming to terms with that resurrection reality. That was in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. If you missed that part of the liturgy or you're listening to the podcast later on in the week, I'll give you a chance to just pause now and flip to Luke 24 to give today's text a read. As we see, these disciples walk towards Emmaus and it's still Easter Sunday. Right before this scene, the female disciples had visited the empty tomb where two people clothed in lightning, presumably angels, suggest that Christ is risen. The women run back to the rest of the disciples to report this, but the other disciples don't listen or don't understand. And that's where the scene shifts, to this dusty road, to these two grieving disciples, two who were probably in that crowd who likely heard these women's reports. They know the tomb is empty, but they don't yet know where Jesus is. So they're returning, and they're returning defeated. As common in Jewish culture, they'd probably pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for Passover that weekend, likely with high hopes for their time there. As disciples of Jesus, this year's Passover might have held new and particular hope with it. They might have been thinking, maybe the Christ will finally take political rule. Maybe this will be the start of Israel's redemption. Remember, that's how they imagined the Messiah, a political king. But instead, their rabbi was killed, and he didn't even fight back. Talk about expectations dashed, something we're probably all more familiar with these days than not. So these folks would have been going home disappointed, but also afraid, uncertain, and then just grieving. Their hearts would have been heavy as they walked the seven miles home to Emmaus, which is roughly like walking from the Japanese Hall, where we gather on Sundays, all the way up Main Street to North Richmond, just over the Fraser River. It's a long time to think about their disappointment as they return to their routine, hopes unfulfilled. I don't think they really knew what they were returning to. So much had changed in a single weekend, its meaning yet to be revealed. And so they were just doing what any of us might do after a disappointing weekend away, going back to how things were. I like how Cynthia Jarvis puts it. They're headed back to fishing nets, to tax offices, missed appointments, and routine. What else was there to do? And then Jesus appears. Not with pomp or circumstance, but incognito, so gently, and with a question. What are you talking about? He asks. I think it's important that Jesus first asks about their grief, then listens to it, before any teaching begins. 
He just walks with them as they unpack their misery. I love that. For whatever reason, the disciples don't recognize Jesus. There are theories out there as to why the way that the Greek is conjugated does suggest that something is preventing them from recognizing Christ. So some scholars think maybe God is preventing this, that there is a purposeful withholding, maybe for the sake of the journey. Others ask if the disciples' own misery is the force that clouds their vision. Are they too downcast to look up or look out? We don't know. But we do know that Jesus walks with them in it, listening with a long game to make himself known to them. This is a story about recognition, about perception, and about surprise. As Nelson suggested months ago in his sermon on Saul's conversion, coming to see more clearly is an apt metaphor for coming to faith. And Luke, the author of today's account, he knew that. His gospel is riddled with references to sight, often relating sight to comprehension, faith, salvation. Jesus himself in Luke 4 quotes Isaiah to suggest that he's the one who's been anointed to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. If you find it easy to see God or to sense God's presence, that is a grace in your life. And if you struggle, like these disciples, to see, that's perfectly okay. Because, as this account suggests, even when you don't see, you are seen. Notice how before they see him, Jesus still sees Cleopas and his unnamed friend. If you're struggling to see God in your life right now, I actually encourage you to imagine yourself in the position of this unnamed disciple today. This disciple doesn't have an identity which is kind of perfect as it invites us to insert ourselves into the story, to connect our own life's pilgrimage to this journey to Emmaus. And as you imagine yourself in that place, perhaps slow to recognize Christ's presence in your life, do know that you are seen. As I said, this is a story about perception, but it's also a story about a journey, another motif common to Luke. This story then, a story about coming to see along a journey, is a microcosm of our very lives. To paraphrase uh, Susan Phillips, a spiritual director and writer and professor, it's on the pilgrim trails of our lives that we develop a sacred consciousness, an everyday sense of God's presence. And finally, in addition to being a story about perception and journey, this is also a story about encounter with the divine. A couple months ago, Nelson preached from another on the road story, one in Acts, where Philip meets the eunuch. And Nelson illustrated the connection that Luke is making between these two road encounters. In doing so, he asked the following question. Could it be that the Spirit wants to create spaces of encounter with each of us much more than we tend to notice or recognize? I think that's worth throwing out there again today. Where might God be wanting to create a space of encounter with you? And where might you be overlooking God's presence? When Jesus sees that the disciples' vision is clouded, he opens up the scriptures for them to help them see. But first, he tells them they're being foolish. I want to acknowledge that this word might distract some of us uh, from the main point of the story, might cause, of us, might cause some of us to assume a certain tone, 
It's not nice to be called foolish. Um, not now, not really ever probably. But also there is a real poverty of English here where the Greek word for foolish, anoetos, most critically means not understanding. I think Luke uses this particular word, anoetos, not understanding, to signal the transition that matters most in this text, a movement from not understanding to understanding, not seeing to sight, not perceiving to a life-changing perception of the divine. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The ensuing conversation must have been gripping, spanning a good chunk of time. We read that by the end of their talk, it's nearly evening. I imagine them walking, talking, kicking up dust on the road, the sun moving lower on the horizon, and these disciples are just hanging on to every word, everything Jesus is saying as if he's offering water to thirst. As they approach the village, Jesus gives them a chance to invite him to dinner and I see something beautiful in their almost needy invitation. Stay with us. So he does, and they eat. Luke writes, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Lots of scholars think that this account in Luke 24 is an intentional reference to another story in Luke where Jesus feeds a crowd of hungry people. In Luke chapter nine, Jesus feeds the 5,000, a story many of us are probably familiar with where, well, Jesus feeds thousands of people. And miraculously too, he feeds them when scarcity is perceived, turning a handful of loaves and fish into an abundant feast. Let's compare the two scenes quickly. Um, in Luke 9:16, Jesus takes the fish, or sorry, takes the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gives thanks and breaks them. He then feeds the crowds. And here in Luke 24:30, Luke writes similarly that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. So there's an obvious connection of breaking bread, but that alone seems like a tenuous connection to justify a direct intentional reference, especially when Luke's gospel is filled with table fellowship. Why is this Emmaus table specifically referencing this miraculous meal? Well, what's interesting is how Luke frames both particular bread-breaking scenes. Both these meals are followed by a critical perception of God with us in the world. After each bread-breaking, a disciple crucially understands who Jesus is. In Luke 9, right after Christ feeds the crowds, Jesus asks Peter, What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter correctly perceives for the first time answering, you're God's Messiah. After breaking bread, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they too see that this man is God's Messiah. But that meaning has taken on a surprising new significance. Christ's expected rule is in his resurrected presence with them, not in any powerful royal seat. Even better than occupying a palace throne, here he is among them at their table. So they run back to Jerusalem to the other disciples and tell them that the Lord has risen, that they misunderstood, that it's even better than they thought. 
There's something quite compelling about this dawning realization. Luke writes in English that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. I think the Greek, the Greek here is even re- richer than the English word recognition. Luke writes, Kai ebignosin autan, which means, and they knew him. Here in Luke 24, the Greek for recognition, for perceiving Jesus, is a version of the word ginosko. This word's often used when a parable's meaning is revealed. It's also often used when two people sleep together, an act of intimacy that English Bibles will usually translate as, and he knew her, and they knew each other. There are lots of youth group jokes about this. But what it suggests, this connection in language, is that this arrival at perception of Jesus for these two disciples at the Emmaus table, it's a deep, intimate knowledge, a heart-level understanding, maybe one that can't actually be totally put into words, but a knowing nonetheless that is deeply aware of having encountered the divine in a very real way. There's a painting of this moment of recognition by a Renaissance artist named Caravaggio. The painting is called Supper at Emmaus, and I have included it in the slides, and I'm also gonna try and insert it into this video, so hopefully you will be able to take a look at it no matter when or how you're listening to this, because I'd like us to consider it together. So let's take a look. You'll notice this is a very Western Jesus, not exactly a historically appropriate depiction of his person. And yeah, we might find that a little distasteful, might be a little bit bored of that depiction, but there's also something good in how Caravaggio's imagination situated the resurrected Christ in his own life. This is an everyday table in 16th century Italy. Notice how Christ's hand and Cleopas's hands both beckon towards us. The viewer visually inviting us in. There's a place for us here at this table. Also notice how plain the setting is. It's an inn, not a temple or a decked out church. The disciples' clothes are even a little tattered. One art critic, Beth Harris, thinks that maybe Cleopas had a cold because if you zoom in on his nose, you'll see that it's a little red as if from too much wiping. This is an ordinary scene, yet it's one filled with extraordinary presence, a moment when the divine enters the everyday. Caravaggio then picks up on the subtext of the Emmaus table, a resurrected Jesus who is unstuck from time or place. Jesus continues to meet us in the ordinary today, longing to be known by us in our everyday circumstances, on the road, at the table, in the scriptures, in our grief, in our frustration, and in our delight. And yet there's still mystery in this revelation. I mean, after all, following this moment, Luke tells us that Jesus just disappears. So perceiving Jesus in our everyday lives doesn't mean seeing with perfect clarity. It simply means saying with Peter, you are God's Messiah. And knowing, like those on the road to Emmaus, that God's Messiah is with us and letting that be the lens through which we view the world. I know I risk sounding like a broken record, 
Just a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday, I talked to you about sight. And here we are again, back to perception, back to how we see God's presence in our everyday lives, in our struggle and in the mundane. But that's because beyond Luke even, scripture is filled with stories of seeing God. These encounters are often so shaking, they're often transforming moments, but they can also just occur at a simple table. How we see seems to be deeply entangled with our discipleship, with being. With being, as Barbara Johnson puts it, Easter people even, or perhaps especially, when the world feels like Good Friday. Seeing also matters for how we operate as creatures in God's creation. As Christian environmentalist uh, Ellen Davis puts it, how we see the world is how we learn to value it. So do we see creation as filled with its creator, and does that transform how we treat it? Do we see God in others, and does that transform how we treat them? Just because we cannot see something doesn't mean it's not there. When the disciples realize Christ's presence, they see that he'd been with them the whole time. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? God was present with them, even in seeming absence, providing God's self despite their ability to recognize that provision. I think, again, this is true for all of life and all of our world. Even when we can't see, God's presence is close, saturating the earth. I think this story invites us to look closer, to look again, to re-examine places that we may have wrote off as absent of presence. My good friend Ross writes music under the name Jehul's Bandana. I will put his band camp in the slides if you want to check him out. Um, And he wrote some of my favorite lyrics on seeing God's presence in the world. I want to share them with you. Ross writes, Weak are my eyes, but you gave me magic glasses. And I've got these season passes to the glory gallery. If Eastertide is, as we've said, about us being raised to new life, about us becoming a new people, Well, a transformed vision is part of this. Because of Christ's resurrection, which was not a one-time only thing, any place, any road, any scripture, any meal can be a place where God's self is made known to us, where we see with those magic glasses. Maybe that's what Eastertide is all about, about learning how to see in this way, especially, or yeah, even and especially in our fear and struggle even in our ordinary every day. And if the road to Emmaus tells us anything, that's the aim of reading scripture, of of life's pilgrimage, of the table, to reorient us to God's immediate presence in our life and world. So as we come to the table this morning, I encourage you to imagine yourself at the Emmaus table, in that moment of recognition. Even if you can't see God anywhere in your own life right now, just pull up a chair in your mind and and imagine seeing and being seen in that moment of perception, of recognition, and in this moment in your living room or wherever it is you are. As we prepare to break bread together, let's recall how Jesus revealed himself in this simple act. 
the simple act of breaking bread, and how he continues to reveal his resurrected self to us in Eastertide and always.